Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. I'm back, it's Sean here and here's Ronan. Hey everyone, you're very welcome to this special episode. We have gone back and yet figly jiggled our vault format, Sean. We have, we have. We have decided that it was far too boring with just the two of us wittering on. And we've brought in... In, in all episodes. In all episodes. So we brought in your favourite, by all accounts, it's Natalie. Hello. It's nice to be here. It's been a while. The listening figures have just gone up 300 right there. I like to do you guys a favour every once in a while, so <laughs> I'm happy to be here. I was about to say they were boosted by the merest whiff of Natalie, then I thought that was a poor choice of words. <laughs> I would say so. Okay, so why is Natalie here? Well, she's the first of the guests we've invited in for our new Vault format. And rather than the two of us just arguing about games that you hear all the time, we've asked our guests to nominate five of the very best games in board gaming as nominees for the Vault. And they're going to introduce them and Sean and I are going to share our thoughts. And then Sean and I are going to break them down from five to one for which we believe is the most deserving to go into the Vault and Natalie's nomination that's chosen to go in in this episode will be the fourth game in 92 episodes to enter the vault as the best of the best. It will join Dominion, Power Grid and Tigris and Euphrates in our, well, effectively is our Hall of Fame, Sean. Still bitter about Carcassonne not making it in Ronan, so hopefully Natalie can remedy things with one of her choices here. Although I believe she wanted to choose Carcassonne, but because Carcassonne had been voted out before, we didn't let her this time. But that doesn't mean it won't be allowed some other time in the future, but we don't really know the rules. We'll make it up as we go along. Yeah. So basically, you're just persecuting me. Persecuting your title fetish? Is is that the word you're looking for there? Is that the word that you're happy with? Uh, I'm not good with words today. <laughs> <laughs> you, oh, you well, it's good that we're recording a podcast then. <laughs> You you talk, talk, talk amongst yourselves, talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> uh, but before we do crack on with Natalie's choices for the vault, we are going to give you a quick another one of our Kickstarter reviews, I guess. It's off Pavlov's House, which is on Kickstarter right now until the 22nd of September 2017. And as ever, this is a non-paid-for review. It's just a game that we've been given a copy of, and we've played and we've enjoyed, so we thought you might like it. That's going to come up first very quickly, and then we'll bang into Natalie's choices. Are you fired up, Natalie? Are you ready to give us excellence in board gaming? I am ready, willing and able. Let's go. Before we hear Natalie's choices and the review of the Kickstarter game from Ronan, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to contact us, and if you wish to download the episodes, we are on Stitcher, iTunes and Podbean itself. Please feel free to give us a review or a like. So, as promised, we're going to give you a very quick overview here of Pavlos House, currently on Kickstarter until the 22nd of September 2017. This is from David Thompson and DVG Games. It is themed around Pavlov's house in the Battle of Stalingrad, which was a house, I'm presuming, owned by a dude called Pavlov. You will find out all the information on history if you do back this game, because there's a huge compendium of history in there. And it was surrounded by the German besieging forces, and the fact that it held out for so long was a big propaganda 
coup for the Russian forces. And you are going to be playing as the Russians. It's mostly built, I'd say, as a solo game. You can play two-player co-op. There's an advanced three-player versus variant, but that is very much a variant. What you can be doing in this game, the board is split into three different areas. You've got Pavlov's house itself, which you're going to be trolling counters, which represent the actual Russian soldiers inside the house. They've got different areas to go to where they're going to be shooting at the German forces, who will be on the second, the middle part of the map. And they will be advancing along lanes, attempting to get to Pavlov's house. And if any of them ever do get along their lane and get the way Pavlov's house, you'd have lost the game. That bit's a little bit like a tower defense bit. And then the third and right-hand part of the map is a more strategic overview in which you're looking at the Russian forces who are backing up uh, strategically what's going on within the city itself. Each round is played in three phases. In the first phase, the Russian player draws four cards and usually gets to use three of them. And the cards are mostly dual purpose ones. So you might be bringing in some anti-aircraft guns or some artillery or preparing supplies or delivering supplies or providing stuff to go into the house to support the actual troops in there. And with every card, you're making a choice of one of the two different priorities. In the second phase, you're going to draw three German cards from a semi-randomized deck and those three cards are going to activate. Stalingrad's going to get bombed or tanks are going to move in or different types of troops are going to move up. All quite simple. Although there's a lot of historic accuracy in the game. There's nothing too complicated or technical in there. And in the third phase, you finally get to move those counters within Pavlov's house itself, react to the threats around you, attempt to take out whatever forces are threatening the house. And that's how you do it. You go round and round, making these decisions, attempting to keep the air damage from overwhelming you and losing the game, making sure that you're keeping all the people in Pavlov's house supplied via flotillas down the river. It's heavily themed, real sense of history to it. Solo, mostly game, which like I say, has got that tower defense feel to it we got sent a full copy i've played it a couple of times i have very much enjoyed the game i still feel like i'm not very good at it but i feel like every decision is quite clear once you get into it there's a little bit of a barrier there to how do these all thread together but once you've played half a game it all suddenly starts to make sense and i would recommend you having a look at pavlov's house it has funded already it's definitely going to come out but it might be worth your time checking on kickstarter I had a look at this before we even got sent the copy. It looks very, very thorough in terms of the historical accuracy, and there seems to be, even on the Kickstarter page, a lot of information. I think you touched on it already. Like, how accessible is the game? Because that was my initial fear that it might not be so. I would say it's a sheep in wolves clothing, Sean. When you first read it, and you first read what everything can do, and the units are not just given one name, they are the 41st Rifle company part of such such battalion parts all historically accurate with their big long names not slimmed down and streamlined for a board game audience the rule book is a little bit wordy and therefore it can seem quite intimidating i can understand i think the biggest barrier for this one as a kickstarter game is that the rule book doesn't really sell it as a quick playing game like i said half a game in for sure and that's probably far too long you will get it and it will snap and you'll look at your cards and you'll go right i want to do that that and that that's how long that phase is put a german card sometimes there's some dice rolling for air attacks and stuff like that each phase takes one or two minutes to do each round maximum five minutes and you're just flicking through so the barrier to entry is in the rules themselves in terms of gameplay very smooth very quick you are a an acknowledged big fan of tower defense games how much of a tower defense game is this? Is that what it's all about or is there more to it? 
I'd say actually the strategic part is the most important because the air damage comes in all the time and you're deciding whether to remove the air damage to stop it from stacking up so you can lose that way. That's more where the thinking is. In terms of the tower defence, it's a case of they move along a very simple path and you're managing your troops and guns within Pavlov's house to try and shoot them off. And the more resources you commit to it, the more dice you roll, the better chance you have of taking them out. The tower defence is a threat. It's something to think about. But actually, each of the three phases ties together quite nicely. I can't say that one is more important than the other. Yeah, I'm very jealous, Ronan, that you've managed to play a couple of games. You took it all the way to Spain with you to play, so I definitely couldn't play it. (laughs) If anyone's interested, get in quick. So, let's get on to the best of the best. Natalie, I think you're going to blow us away with your choices. Hit us with your first one. Aquasphere. No messing. Oh, what an aquasphere. I love a party with a happy Okay, we'll mute Sean. Mute someone. Someone somewhere (laughs) mute Sean. I'm so sorry, everyone. I'm so sorry, everyone. I should have known that this was going to happen and I shouldn't have picked You married that. I know. That's all I'm going to well, say. I was born into it. Um, he was here first. If a man can't blast out a Russ Abbott hit song. Then what the can he do? Russ Abbott. The Russ song. Abbott hit song. Hit, hit very loosely used there. <laughs> <laughs> You're like the Les Dennis of the North. Can we, can we get on with why we're actually here instead of boring your listeners to absolute death? It's Aquasphere Don't Start, published in 2014 by Stefan Feld released by Tasty Minstrel Games and Pegasus Spiel and a whole bunch of others. I think everybody in the world knows what Aquasphere is about. It's a lovely programming, Euro, set collection, area control, some would say point salad of a game, which I absolutely adore. I adore it for quite a few reasons. Obviously, it's made my top five. I like it because there's a lot of things to do. I think there are a lot of routes to try and win. I would like to go on record as saying as I don't think I've won. But that doesn't diminish how much I love it. But there are lots of routes to go and try and win. You can't do everything. There are some real choices to be made. I like the board. I know not a lot of people do, but I quite like the aesthetics of it all. That's Aquasphere, my first choice for the vault. Go on, hit me with what you've got. I was doing the research for this and I was quite surprised to find out how much sort of vitriol there is for this game out there. A lot of people call it (gasps) Feld's worst game, which was really surprised me. So some of the things that people have said is that there's too many working parts, it's confusing, and it's impossible to tell who's winning the game. How do you respond to that? My answer to that is what's the value in knowing who's winning the game? We've all sat around and we're like, oh, that person's winning, that person's winning. And it can be quite demoralising to people who are quite far behind because you feel, oh, well, I'm never going to catch up with them. If you're looking at a board and you genuinely can't see who's winning a game, then you've still got everything to play for and it keeps you engaged the whole way through. I'm going to say that there's a little bit of merit in the statement that there's too much going on. And I think Sean and I, it's going to be quite clear from the five choices that he's made, we love them all. (laughs) It's going to be a tough choice, one to five. So we're trying to play devil's advocate a bit here. And in fact, most of them appeared in our top 50s. So that'll give you a clue that she's, she's made some great choices. But looking for negatives for Aquasphere, I think there's some merit in that there's too much going on. And when I kind of started thinking about it and, and pulling it apart, the two things that I felt maybe didn't need to be in the game were the octopods, because they're, they're just one more obstacle to getting things done. Quite often, if you're going somewhere and it has four octopods, 
you can get rid of them. It's just extra points to you as opposed to someone who's going somewhere else and has got to get rid of the one octopod. You don't go there necessarily to do it. It's, it's the worst of point salad. And the other thing which is linked to points in the game, which I was like, oh, I don't know that that needs to be in there, is the black crystals. So in the game, as you're scoring points, there are red lines on the circular score track. And to get past certain lines, you have to pay a black crystal. And now, let's say you went from 24 to 28 and then you got knocked down a few points and you went past that red line again, you'd have to play another black crystal to get past, which is when it's doubly annoying. For too much, those are the two things that I'd say you could get rid of and still maintain the integrity of Aquasphere. Okay, so I, I take on board the octopods and I do, I think there is a lot going on, but it's kind of why it appeals to me. You can kind of just do your own thing. You'll see from my list that I don't really like attacky games. I don't like combative games. I like being left alone and moving bits of wood. I don't, really? Yeah. I don't think your list is like that at all. Really? Yeah, if in, in Euro terms, I think actually there's quite a lot of interaction in these games. Yeah, but I just like being left alone. Don't interact with me while I'm doing it. <laughs> And I would actually take on board the octopods bit. I find that's one of the extraneous pieces of this particular game. However, you know, the Black Crystals thing is not just unique to this game. You'll note that in Suburbia, you have to do the same thing when you're you're moving up the points track. You have to pay reputation and population, don't you, to go above certain things. And you have to do it twice. So it's not unique to this game. But you've game. got a lot of them. The Black Crystals are really hard to get. It can cost you two with a tiny bit of bad timing or you can have done everything else well in the game. You don't have a crystal where you can't score points. You just can't score them. That's it. I will find it very difficult to pick holes in this game because I do adore it so much. I do take on board the octopods thing, but I still think it's an incredibly strong contender for the vault. Although you did miss out Carcassonne and believe me, we will be having words offline later. <laughs> I actually agree about the octopods. They're just uh, an annoyance. and I suppose the, the black crystals are an annoyance as well, but I, I kind of feel that they kind of fit in. They stop anybody with a really, really superior engine just surging ahead. They've always got to sort of put the brakes on and think, oh, oh, no, I need to get a crystal. And that gives people a chance. Maybe who have already got that crystal into their hands just to accelerate a little bit. Boy, she's supposed to be defending the games here, not you. <laughs> struggling to find negatives. You're supposed to be backing me up. <laughs> my, next, my next point, Leslie, do you think the theme comes through at all? Do you ever feel like you're in an underwater uh, laboratory and collecting samples, etc., or do you just think it's a felt game? I'm not, in this household i am not the theme person at all i'm the oh little bits that i can move about there are different colors i don't care i actually quite like the board it looks pretty but you know i don't think the theme comes through i don't think i feel like i'm sitting in an underwater drilling capsule or what have you but i don't necessarily think that that matters especially not with a euro game I like to think I'm wearing Jules Verne like, underwear when I'm playing it. That's what kind of gets me into the thing. So you're basically wearing think, Jules Verne underwear when you're playing it? it yeah. yeah. Okay. I, actually, I think the theme is evoked more by the looks. The fact that the submarines are docking and that it's, everything is kind of circular and that riveted look. It does, for some reason, and it's not thematically linked, I think it's just the looks, it does make me feel a tinge more nautical <laughs> than other games. We'll just say that. Sean, you must have some nice things to say about Aquasphere rather than just carving it apart the whole time. Oh, absolutely. It's it's a Feld. Absolutely massive Feld fan. In my opinion, it's his best work, as I said in my top 50 rundown already. The working parts just all come together. It's, it's thinky, it's head scratchy, but it all makes sense. And I think we've talked about it before. Yes, it's a point salad, but it's one of the Feld games where the point salad actually makes a bit of sense. You can understand why you're getting points for this and why you're getting points for that and why, why they can all sort of come together. So I'm a big fan of Aquasphere. 
yeah, I think it's a, a great mental workout. It's not a game to play when you're a bit tired. It's a game to play when you go, yeah, I'm up for games. I want to think. Urgh, work, brain, work. And indeed, when you do pull off combos and you do use the robot program in a clever way and you use your time, which is a big part of the game, cleverly, the game makes you feel clever. You get that warm glow off. Oh, look what I did. And I'll say one other positive for it is that in many Euros, and a lot of people will say that you don't feel like an individual. You don't have your own things to do. You don't have your own powers. This does give you the ability to build your own little station up so that you've got your own bit that you've made and also you get to choose those cards so that you can have your own little powers and you're not doing exactly the same game as everyone else and those are positives to me as well but they're just tack-ons to what is a very good engine that's running your submarine along there in aquasphere great first choice they're all good choices natalie but what's number two Suburbia, very strong game, came out in 2012, designed by Ted Elspach and released by Bezier Games. Again, I think I've picked a lot of games that a lot of people will be familiar with, and Suburbia is one of them. It's also beloved of Mensa. And it's tile placement, managing your city, getting your bonuses, increasing the reputation of your city so that people will come and live there. It increases your income. It's one of those that's don't play it when you fancy something like because you're going to need to think about this sucker. And I love that. I love the tile placement aspect of it in the similar sort of way to what you've been saying with Aquasphere is when you start chaining together your engine and you start seeing things just, oh, well, I've placed this tile, which means I score points here, 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 here. That's always fun. That's my second choice for the vault. Look favourably upon it. See, now you're in trouble because you're just make, you're making me be mean. It's like I'm being mean to my children. I love me a bit of suburbia, but... I didn't play Suburbia for a long, long time because, in my opinion, it looks terrible. It looks dated, it looks dull, and it looks clinical. For shame. I'm just calling out for shame there before Natalie says anything. (laughs) Yes. It's not beautiful, but I think we can agree that you are perhaps more concerned with aesthetics of a board game than I am. I truly don't care. As long as it's not puke brown, I'm all right. Let's go for it. What it does is it conveys the information that you need to know to lay your tiles to the maximum effect to score you as many points as possible. If you want a prettier game of that version, and it's it's by the same people, it's uh, Mad Castles by King Ludwig. The Castles of Mad King Ludwig. That's the one. And that's a prettier version of what you do with Suburbia, but I think it's a less elegant version, which is why Suburbia made my list and Mad Castles didn't. I think Sean's just wrong on it. It does look great. And when I see it on the table, it attracts me. And I think, oh, that looks interesting. And it's clear. And, and it lets me make decisions without having to faff around. I think also you're wrong about Carson Mack and Ludwig. That's not a very good game at all. And I feel sad that it's constantly linked to suburbia because it doesn't work very well. One of the things that I will say is, especially when you first play and you don't know the tiles, it feels like you have more choices than I think you actually do have in the game. Because quite often you're making a choice of two or three tiles or to turn it into a lake. You don't have that broad ranging. You know, when it opens up, you're like, oh, I can do anything here. I can run a restaurant chain or get a load of airports. Actually, you really can't. And especially if you don't keep your money flowing in, then your choices are very, very limited. So that's kind of the one of the, the couple of negatives I found with the game. Isn't that sort of the whole point is that you do have to keep an eye on your money as you would if you were running a city and you don't actually have that many choices when you're building things as you would when you're building a city I don't necessarily think more choices from that point of view would necessarily equal a superior game I actually agree with your point 
the limit of choices makes it a more interesting game. Okay, right. so I know I'm singing from the same hymn book as Ronan. I'm not sure how you feel about this, but I always whinge about it when we play. Casino, PR firm, broken, throw them out of the game. You're obsessed. I am. You're obsessed. And as a house rule, we do chuck them. Okay, so let me just explain. Dropping finances and reputation every time you go up in population, these two negate that. So if one person gets one, or God forbid, two, then it's almost a, a guaranteed win. Yeah, why not? I mean, I must agree with you because I agree to chuck them every game we play. Sometimes for a quiet life, but sometimes I do. You know, I think that you have a point, especially in a two-player game, which is obviously the one that we play the most. Sean just took the wind out of my sails. PR Firm is the worst tile in any game that was ever put in, ever. (laughs) When you were talking about the heart of the game, the fact is you can't push ahead until your infrastructure is ready. That's what makes it feel like a city-building game to me. And when you get PR Firm... It doesn't matter about infrastructure. It doesn't matter anymore because you're not getting punished. So just push ahead and go and go. It just completely, completely ruins the game. It's terrible. I mean, I'm with you, but let's just think about this logically. From a theming standpoint and the fact that you have a PR firm that allows you to do that, isn't that quite clever? Don't you think if you have a fantastic PR firm and you're putting stuff out there, you say, this is a great place to come and live even if it's just rubbish? That actually still yeah, falls in with a the theme. I kind of feel like I hate PR in all its forms. Yeah, but that's just natural. <laughs> yes, I think that leaks through as well. <laughs> as well as it being mechanically awful. Thematically, I'm like, God, I hate PR first. <laughs> Come on, Lady. Stop trying to sell me. Go on, get out of here. All right, Sean, we've been trying to rag on a game we love. Tell me some good things about Suburbia. Ah, uh, Suburbia, Suburbia. It's just, it's actually a really easy game to explain and get onto the table. It's certainly way deeper than it, it appears at first. You've got that city on, on the table, your tableau that you've built, something that you've created afterwards. There's something I always love in games, and it's a fantastic game. I absolutely love it. I, I'm going to be an echo chamber. The spatial aspect is fantastic. The fact you're building up for yourself. There's a real sense of satisfaction when you start running things together, making it all work. And what was interesting is that Natalie responded thematically about PR firm that we were complaining about mechanically. And that talks to the fact that the theme of this game, it makes it all make sense. All of the tiles can be explained thematically. And that is one of the things that really ties it all together and possibly pushes it from the very good to the great games. All the tiles work like that. They all make sense, apart from maybe lakes. The lakes thing I never really got, creating lakes. Hmm. Anyway, that's against my own point that the theme is brilliant in suburbia and it's a fantastic choice. And we're going to go on to your number three, Natalie. My third choice is Lorenzo Il Magnifico. It came out last year, 2016, and it is designed by Flaminio Brizzini, Virginio Gili and Simone Luciani, and it was published by Cranio Creations. It's, again, another Euro, galloping shock to neither of you, I'm sure. It's worker placement, standard kind of stuff, set collection. You have to string together a card, so you have that option to work on different areas or a different path to victory. And there's an interesting mechanic in there is that you have to appease the church by getting a certain number of faith points. You're pushed to a choice three times within the game. You either spend your faith points to negate any of the negative effects that it's going to bring to you, or you say, actually, no, the church is isn't going to get my faith points I'm going to keep my faith points and you get excommunicated and therefore you get a negative effect on your gameplay and it pushes you to a decision that affects your entire game which I find unusual 
in a standard Euro and is something that really stands out for me for this particular game. It's very strong. I love it. You mentioned about not having games that you don't like any sort of combative play. But I think Lorenzo is very combative. I think it's a very punishing game. And possibly some people would find it too punishing. Maybe I'm just toughening up. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I genuinely don't read it that way. Well, there's limited spaces, isn't there? There's limited spaces, spaces, limited cards. But you're limited by yourself as well. It's not just someone else limiting you. There are four areas that you can go and get cards which will give you bonuses. And what you need to do is go into that area. And if you're the first person in there, you don't have to pay anything. But if you're following someone in, you do have to pay additional money. And also, if you've gone in one area, you can't go in it again unless a card bonus gives you that option. So I think, yes, you're limited from a space point of view, but that's the same as most Euro games. And I don't think that that's combative by nature. I think it can be if you know someone's collecting, say, all green cards and you go and nab the last one that you think that they can get, then yes, that's combative. But I don't think it's an out and out take that game, to be honest with you. See, I think it can be. I think you in a two-player game especially you get one player can run their engine yeah i think you can really block people off you can ruin their turn by by just yes you can a bit of strategic playing i've never won this you're a shark at this but i know yeah. but you keep like, i would win by more points if you just let me do my production when <laughs> i want to do my alone. production yeah on. just leave <laughs> me alone <laughs> she makes a fair point i can't argue with that <laughs> you know sean i had this listed under my positive the fact that every space is 4-4, while I agree with Nat that obviously that's a big part of every worker placement, in most worker placement games, when I'm sitting there waiting for my turn, that's my first choice. Okay, what if it gets blocked? Okay, that's definitely my second choice. And then I can kind of chill and watch the game, and then it's my go. I'll get to do number one or two. In the red zone, my Gifco, I have to choose my first, second, third, and fourth choice spots, because more than likely they're going to get taken. And it's a shifting challenge all the time. And even if they don't go in space that you want to go to, they might claim the building, for example, that you were going to build in as part of your engine. And you go, oh, right, that's gone. I now need to rethink what resources have I got? What is best to go now that that one's gone? And I think it's a real positive for the game. If that's, that's almost the heart of it to me. So I find it strange you had it down as a negative, mate. No, I'm not having to have it down as in uh, negative itself. Challenging Natalie on what she said earlier. She said she doesn't like combative games, but I find this to be co- very combative. So it's not really a negative on my part. Because you said, and in suburbia, like, <laughs> sorry to harp back on about that, but in suburbia, how many times have you tanked a tile and turned it into a lake just because it would completely suit the next person along? Okay, yeah, there you go. That cost me $4. <laughs> um, I'm not nasty, so I don't do that. <laughs> oh, um, okay the <laughs> other thing i was gonna pull on and i'm amazed that sean didn't come up with it is the horribly dull and completely uh, nonsensical theme mate you can't even honestly it's the most boring looking thing in the world oh, no, 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 it is boring looking. it is but it matched with the theme oh, oh geez no you i've i completely like i can't I've, there's no defense for this so we saw this <laughs> there isn't we saw this at 2016 in essen we were walking around in the press junket bit beforehand and we walked past this stand and we'd both had a look at it and it was on our let's go and have a look at this and we walked past and i was like oh my god that is the most boring looking box on the face of the planet i'm not here for that but you wanted a copy so we went and picked a copy up for you and then we played it 
And it was so good. I was like, I have to get a copy of this. I have to get a copy of this game. And it was the first thing I did the next morning when I went into the into Essen. Because the game, I don't care what it looks like now. And I don't care that the theme actually doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense. Because the mechanics and the gameplay is so good and strong. There are so many options. There is that thing where you have to kind of go, well, I need my first, second, third and fourth. But how great is it in a game that in one turn you have four options to do things? So actually, unless you've sabotaged yourself by being a numbskull, you do have options to do every turn and you're not just sitting there marking time. I think that's incredible. Until that turn where you get there and you go, I've got no service, I've got no money. Yeah, but that's your own fault, right? That's you sabotaging yourself. You can get completely stuck. Like you can, you can. And you have to, you know, there are times where you're going to be like, hmm, I have no servants. I can't do a thing. Leave yourself with only your zero worker and no servants for the last thing. I've done that. Genius. (laughs) Your last player next turn. I'm the biggest genius there ever there was. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that, that box is, is horrific. But I actually like to see... I think it's held it back. I generally think, yeah, I think it has. The box people is, have not played the I cover. Think it's so. just horrendous. It just, it doesn't look good. And I think it's a real shame because this is an mm. incredibly strong game. You know, I do like that Faith track. Normally, and I'm thinking of what the Grand Dostria Hotel, that one, that is very similar. But when you run along the tracks in that one, there's nothing really there that puts you to an uncomfortable decision. Like, what am I willing to sacrifice to keep these points for the next time? Maybe the next Sean. one. Sean, the answer is always Sean. <laughs> Maybe the next one is even worse for you, but you have to get to the same points again plus. So, what do you do? And that to me is a real decision, one of the real strengths of the game. And it makes the game more personal for you, your own track. You, you, you're either collecting the purple cards or the green cards, or you're, you're stringing together blues and yellows. And then on top of this, you've made different choices as to what hit you're going to take from the faith track, if any, because you may be, I don't know, you may have such a strong engine that you can just spend your faith points like it's your job. So, those to me are interesting decisions which makes this game so strong. And it is a shame that actually it doesn't look terribly enticing. I like to think of the theme as actually, the theme isn't the theme that they say it is. The theme is you're playing a Euro game. That's it. It just It's so Euro. You've gone very meta there. I know, I know. It's just so Euro. It's just like, I'm playing a Euro game. I'm going to wrap myself in that warm embrace of A Euro Euro game about a Euro game. Nat was talking about the faith track there. As we've played it more, I've definitely noticed that people have started looking at the faith track and doing that thing of deciding. If I plan my game, I don't have to hit the faith every time, each of three times. I can take that second hit, I can take that third hit, and it won't affect me. Yeah. As long as I'm aware they're coming up. And the people have kind of adjusted. Because you know, usually, with the first few times you play it, everyone's trying to hit the faith every second turn. They go, oh, I don't want the punishment, I don't want the punishment. But you can roll with it. And I like that because people are evolving in how they play and learning the game. And, and even though it's a you know, the same set of cards. Lots of games go for, here's a thousand cards. Well, all right, maybe not that many. Here's a hundred cards. We're going to use 40 every game. This is the same set of cards every game. There is an expansion coming out in this Essen, but these are the same cards every game. But still, there's different ways of playing with them. It's almost a throwback to an older, tighter way of game design. Agreed. The point you made about the faith track is very well taken because I did the same. When we played it first time, I was like, got to hit that faith track, got to hit that faith track. Don't want to take those negative outcomes. And then the next time I play, it's like, actually, if you think about this strategically, which is very unusual for me, if you think about it strategically, I can I can take that hit because I'm not bothered. Like one of the negatives maybe have impacted yellow cards or something of that nature. And I'm not interested in those. 
So actually, that's fine. I can take that hit or I'm happy to take that hit. I'll just have to prepare better. And I like that. So for me, yeah, Lorenzo Magnifico would definitely have been in my top 50 had I played it enough times when I was compiling that top 50. It, every time I play it, I'm enjoying it a little bit more. I'm, I'm finding more things out about it, finding more things out about the way I'm adapting to it. And it is certainly on the rise for me and maybe even a top sort of 10 contender in the future for me. That's how much I like this one. Oh, oh. Not quite there yet. Not quite there yet. I've gone over a lot of my positives already. Actually, I didn't. I didn't pull up too many negatives. The one other positive I'll say is the time frame of the game. There's a lot of thinking in a game that comes in at yeah. For two player, you guys probably an hour. It comes in under an hour and a half at four players, and you really feel like you've done a lot of thinking in that time. Uh, the the weight to length is fantastic. And the last thing I'm gonna say is, it's not that much of a stretch. It's from the designer of Audion, but I think the ugly euro box that's going to be very good at this year's Essen is Alta Plano and it's going to be one of our treasure hunts coming up and we'll give it a, a bit of more of a going over there there you go it's got a llama okay. on the box you've got to buy it automatically then surely a llama. it's a pretty ugly box with a llama it, <laughs> it's not one of those hot llamas that I always go for it's not Baron Park <laughs> well whoa. Right. Do you need to have a lie down? <laughs> okay. That's an edit point. That's definitely an edit point. Welcome back, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Number four, Natalie. Lords of Waterdeep, published in 2012. The designers are Peter Lee and Robert Thompson, and it came out of Wizards of the Coast. I love this game so much. It's another worker placement. It's another set collection. You're going around, you have a certain number of workers and then you'll pick more up. I think it's in the fifth turn. You're going to go and collect a bunch of resources. You're going to go on quests. You're going to go and build buildings and get points that way. You've got to manage your resources and your money. And it's a lovely little, I would say for me now, simple worker placement game, which has a huge place in my heart because I started playing it I think just after I really got into playing games and I found it as quite a it blew my hair back it's the D&D aspect coupled with a worker placement game which I love both things equally yeah I just love this game it makes me smile I bet you can't find anything negative to say about it because it's fantastic I'm not going to say anything negative straight off the bat I've got two questions for you first one there is a correct answer and a wrong answer Cubes or D&D pools? I don't care. In oh, that was the wrong answer. That was the wrong that's answer. Terrible. No, that's terrible. <laughs> no, actually. Incredibility. I was being funny. I was being funny. The little D&D meeples are so cute. It's unreal. I'd like to put a motion on the table. Can we cancel the whole episode and just vote D&D pools into the vault now? <laughs> Do it. Done. Why are they not already there? <laughs> Why are they not already there? Maybe they will be after this episode. Who knows? Um, no, they are incredibly cute. And you did spend extra money to get those little things. And I was kind of looking at you quizzically, as I often do when something comes through the post. Mandatory quest cards. Yay or nay? My answer comes in two parts. When I am playing them on someone else, big old thumbs <laughs> up. When they are being played upon me, I will burn them to the ground. I bet that's not the answer you were looking for, huh? I don't think they lend a lot to the game. I think they're just a, an irritant, and I don't think this game particularly needs them. Otherwise, I would say it's a very oh, yeah. gateway. But it's funny. They're kind of they're, I'm gonna, they're kind of a necessary evil. 
Now, I Funny. don't. Uh, I had them down as kind of a negative with a bit of positive. If you didn't have them, what's going to happen with the leader? Yeah, I suppose it's, it is a mechanism. Yeah, someone chains up, it, yeah. gets gets a couple of those 40-point missions, gets ahead. You can then play as well as them for the rest of the game, and you're never going to catch them. So it, it is the catch-up mechanism. It's an annoying one when they're played on you. It's a bit of an obvious one. It's not the most elegant mechanism ever. I can't say I like them, but I see them as a necessary evil. Honest to God, you guys, you have no fun in your souls it's hilarious when you play them on other people i'm dropping three on you next time we play and let's see the fun in your soul my soul will be torn out through my something (laughs) i just told you that when they're played on me they're rubbish and should be burnt to the ground when they played on you the other people through it get all bit pitchy blinders does it (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna witch you i'm gonna witch you right up Really I think does. I threatened you in London slang with a brummy eyes. That didn't work at all. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> anyway, I'll throw something negative at you guys. It's a case that you get the lords, and the lords will give you bonuses for the types of quests that you do. And different types of quests suit different types of adventurers. So if you get warfare, then you need lots of fighters. And the buildings come up, and there is three are available, but quite often you get one or two rubbish ones that no one wants to build. If buildings come up and are available that have lots of fighters on anyone who then has a warfare scoring opportunity their lord or lady has a big advantage in the game because of the building draw it's actually quite powerful what buildings are available it's a positive because the players can obviously make their board unique for each game and you have influence on what's available and all the rest of it but also a negative that you can get weighted it ties in also with what quest cards become available and if i'm the only one who's got commerce quests and you two aren't chasing them but you're chasing the same type of quest there's a little bit of an imbalance with the lord scoring it gives you an aim to get to but it kind of wonks the game a little bit I'm going to throw something out there. I don't actually think that the lords and ladies bring a tremendous amount to the game other than, as you say, making it a bit skew if. And I'd be quite happy with the game if they weren't there. They do give you a bit Genuinely of direction. And they give you they a do, reason but... for building certain buildings and mining through the quests and stuff. But surely just picking up the quests do that. Like if you pick up the quests and the, the, you have your little quests that take, you know, three fighters and two clerics and what have you and then you've got your really meaty 20 25 point ones if you pick those cards up they take a while to get to so then you would build for those which you do anyway like there are times when i have played the game i've had my lord and lady but none of my 25 pointers that have come out have matched that so i've just took the 25 pointer that was available and built for it i wasn't getting anything out that would help to tie it back into the previous point it's the only hidden scoring so true then are the mandatory quests too obvious because there's no hidden scoring at all you can look at someone and go well they've got seven piety quests done well maybe they're the person i need to stop or i should start looking at blocking the cleric place because the game works so well i'm more kind of loath to mess with it too much but i like moaning about it that's okay moaning is <laughs> moaning's fine no I, I mean i do take your point it can be skew if when those quests come out and it's not matching what your lord and lady is and your buildings aren't helping you so, Natalie, uh, one of the things I've I sort of delved into Board Game Geek and look at, looked at some of the negative reviews and a couple of things coming out more often than others, and people are saying that there's a lack of tension in the game due to, A, obvious choices and a lack of scarcity. 
I don't particularly like scarcity in games anyway. So that to me is not a negative. Whilst this is a euro, I find it a lighter euro. And there are things that I require from a lighter euro rather than a deeper game that we're going to play. And one of those is actually I don't want to be fighting for my resources. I want them to be readily available because that's not the point of the game. The point of the game is to fulfill the quest. I think if you go into this game looking for those aspects, then yes, you're going to be disappointed because they're not built for that. And I think there's scarcity in the game anyway. Try playing the game where you need to do arcane quests and there's no extra wizard buildings come out. There's only one wizard to fight for every turn. That, that's fairly scarce. I'm playing five or six players. It's not easy at all. Fair enough. You have a pointy yeah, I ain't having there. that. I'm getting on. I'm getting all up in arms about it. No, I'm not having it. Again, Lords of Waterdeep is one of my favourite games. It was one of the first worker placement games I played. And to be honest, if you want to do a worker placement, Look at this game. It does it does it perfectly. It blended that Dungeons and Dragons Forgotten Realms theme into the game. Yeah, it's not overwhelmingly burdened with theme, but it's there. You are, especially with the D and D pools, which are a must, an absolute must. Go out and get them if you haven't got them in your game. You can't be you can't be sending cubes out to do your warring for you. It's a very good gateway game. We talked about the Dungeons & Dragons games previously, and what we said was they took genres of games and they smoothed them off and they made them very accessible and put their theme on and said, here you go, here's a great way to learn certain mechanisms. And that's why Lords of Waterdeep gets accused of being unoriginal sometimes. But it, it is as original as 95% of games out there. Not truly innovative, but it takes things that have been done elsewhere and ties them together in a slightly unique way. And uh, there must be something there, because how many times are we getting games in the past four years say, oh, it's like Lords of Waterdeep Light. Or it's like Lords of Waterdeep this, or it's like Waterdeep that. Therefore, if you're referring back to Lords of Waterdeep, it must be doing something different and better than other games. It's become a standard reference. It's kind of a giant amongst board gaming now in its own accessible, relatively lightweight, and sneered upon by gaming snobbery way. The quick pace of the game is fantastic. It's got two expansions in one box, both of which add unique things to the game, which has longevity to it. You've got individual board development on there, which is, I'm going to keep coming back to something I love in games. And Lord's War Deep is a great game, guys. All the things you can say about it, about the theme not, not being part of it, and why is it Dungeons Dragons game and the rest of it. Take the game on its own merits. It's a very good game. Natalie, your fifth and final nominee for The Vault. I've gone for Vikings, published in 2007, designed by Michael Kiesling and released by Z-Man Games, amongst others. I love this game. It's a tile placement game. It's set collection. There's a little bit of engineering of prices of your tiles. You have to be aware of what you're doing, a little bit of what other people are doing, because there can be a certain element of take that to it. If you're not familiar with the game, you've got your, your tableau and you have to take tiles and pay for them over a course of six rounds. And that price structure varies depending on what tiles have already been taken you also get vikings when you take the tile and you have to make sure you've got enough food to feed them and got enough boatsmen to put them on their islands and then you at the end you end up with this lovely tableau well supposedly lovely tableau with your big islands and your small islands and you've got your vikings on it and you're pushing off marauders and it's a lot of fun to look at I'm not a huge fan of kind of bidding or auctions, but it's got that sort of element to it, whereas it's how much are you willing to pay for something along the price structure. Yeah, this is a great game, and it comes out on our table quite often. So you've got this, the wheel that sort of chooses what uh, Vikings you can take and how much you have to pay for them and the, the island pieces. Is that a gimmick, and are your choices obvious? 
I don't think it is a gimmick. I think it's an easy it's an easy way to do that particular thing. It kind of has the auction aspect without actually being a proper auction, which, as we know, I hate. I think the only place you don't really have choices is obviously it's very random as to how the tiles come out and are laid around that wheel. So if you're kind of short on an end island piece or a beginning island piece, more beginning island than end, to be fair, you know, you can be a little bit scuppered and you can be taking tile pieces to throw them away and just have the Viking. But if you've played that game often enough, you know that that's something that you have to kind of allow for. So I tend to play it in a way that I get all of my beginning pieces in the first couple of rounds, if I can. Because why wouldn't you? i tell you why you wouldn't. Because uh, the game only works with three players. Oh, yeah. I'm putting that out there. Oh, with yeah. the six rounds. Yeah, yeah. With the six rounds, if you play with four players, the third and fourth player get screwed over. They only get to go first once. And those beginning pieces are gone. And the blue fishermen are gone. And it is absolutely screwed. So my main criticism of it is... It only works properly three-player. And I'm going to throw on top of that that each game is a bit samey. So I have to take a point of three-player. I don't play it three-player. Do you really feel like it works two-player very well? Or do you feel like you'd rather play it with more? I'm happy to play it two-player. I don't need to play it with more people. I like it as it is. With two-player, the, the, the price is not going to fluctuate between the two of you by much at all. When you're playing four-player... Someone can go ding, 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 and suddenly it's it's eight coins cheaper for, for a tile for someone. You go, oh, how did that happen? I think two-player is a very different game than three-player. I think three-player is probably its, its strongest, but I think two-player is a different game. You've got more opportunities. It's a lack of scarcity almost that you've got those opportunities to get those tiles. It's just how much they they cost you, and it's small. Maybe the people changes. who are moaning about Lords of Waterdeep were played Vikings. <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. And on the point of each game being samey, I'm okay with that. There are games that I play for comfort. Vikings is one of them. Carcassonne, and believe me, we'll be talking about that later. Is another. Well, Carcassonne each game is not samey. Definitely, I'll give you hey. that. <laughs> but you guys are playing two player again, aren't you? There you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I can see what you're saying and the comfort that it's a it's puzzle a comfort, and it's a yeah. similar puzzle. Yeah, 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 I can see it. So it's the it's the comfort aspect I take from that. Also, I tend to win that game, which, you know, is nice because I don't win a lot. I'm starting to win more, but Vikings is nice because it gives me a little ego boost. Um, and I like... Everyone likes games that they're good at. Everyone likes games. <laughs> and I, I'm a sucker for tile placement. I really love a tile placement game. I like the puzzle aspect. That's why this is in my top five. I, it comes out on the table often. It's, I find it incredibly enjoyable. It's the auction aspect without actually having to do the auction. And it's just, I get to beat Shawnee 98% of the time. <laughs> I want to know what the mass cognitive dissonance is that no matter how many times I teach it, and no matter how many times I say to them, you need fishermen. Don't underestimate the blue meeples. New players will never pick them. Really? Oh, never. Even Every when time I, I, mean, I literally I take these. I'm going to take this on my turn if you don't take it. Oh, no, I think I'll take this. Okay, you've just lost. <laughs> it's because <laughs> they, they, they don't score you points. And, they, and people can't... It's, it's that sort of mind... The messing with your mind. It's not going to score you points. It's not going to do anything for you now. It's only at the end of the game. But look, that red one's going to score you points. That gold, that yellow one's going to get you money straight away. It's just it's difficult to see until you've played the whole game. Do you know when I feel the worst is if you get three 
blue ones that say the first two rounds, and that's what their impression of how many there are of them in the bag. And then I oh, just leave it till the last round, the second last round. I'm like, no, this is most of them. There's probably like two left. You need to get some of these. Ah, I'll get them later. Oh, I'm sorry we played this game and you died. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sean. Yeah, I know you've been struggling to uh, to slay off Vikings. Tell us some good things. Oh, Vikings. Vikings. I, lo- I love the mechanism with the wheel. It's almost a game within the game itself. It's, uh, it's again, building that tableau that's yours at the end of the game. I'm not sure about the theme, actually hold- holding too much water, but I go back to something Natalie said about Aquasphere. She doesn't win at Aquasphere, but yet she loves the game. I think that's the, the true test of-, of a really good game. Something that you're not very good at, but you still want to play, and you still want to get better and look at ways you can win. The unique purchasing system, I'm right there with you. I'm not sure why that system hasn't been used more in other games as part of bigger games. It would seem to make sense to me. Everyone I play with goes, I really like that. So there you go. I really love the push in your luck. Natalie was saying, star item pieces are scarcer than you think they ever should be. Blue Vikings are scarcer than you think they ever should be. You need them to feed your Vikings at the end of the game. And when they're out there, it's the whole thing of, oh, should I spend nine, which is almost all my money, or risk it? And then, boom, next time it comes around, it's gone. And you're like, oh, I should have spent the nine. Really a great thing there where you're, it edges on bluffing as to what you really are going for and, and how much you're willing to spend. And it is very interactive. This is a game of scarcity. And this is a game where if you take it, someone else cannot get it. There's no other way of getting that piece. So uh, I really like Vikings. It's a very good game. Again, Natalie, those are five fantastic choices. I make a motion. Can I make a motion right now? You may. The games are fantastic. I'm fantastic. Let's just make a motion to stick them all in the vault. Be done. Let's go home. I thought we'd agreed that your place went to D&D pools. Didn't we all just agree on that? No, they should be in separately. Okay, okay. Yeah, so in the baggy carried it. Oh, he's, he's gone. Something's happened over there. <laughs> I am right. going to check on him. Someone needs to check on him. What we're going to do now is Sean and I are going to list the five games that Natalie has nominated. I expect there may be shouts and cries of dismay or despair somewhere along. And the game that we choose for our number five out of five is going to get one point. The game we choose is number one out of five is going to get five points and everything in between. They're going to add the points together and see if there is a game that has the most points because we haven't told each other how we've chosen these that game is going to go in the vault if there's a tie natalie has the casting vote and i don't think we're going to draw this out for too long so sean what was your fifth choice for these this actually changed mid episode a couple of times because these are all so do mine <laughs> yeah you know, just talking about them maybe oh god i was trying to think back like where were they in my top 50 and should i stay um faithful to that and i was like no you know yeah what? i haven't done that no, no yeah exactly <laughs> These games are so interchangeable for me. They're all fantastic. But games. I think because I, I'm choosing this on a different set of criteria. Yeah, this yeah. is for the vault. So maybe I'll talk about one as we go through them. But I, they're not necessarily in my personal choice of list. But part of it is what I think deserves to be in the vault. Right. So this is it seems really harsh because it's such a fabulous game. My number five choice is Vikings. <gasps> yeah. Same Z. That's definitely oh, not going oh, Vikings has <laughs> had the door slammed shut. Amongst these, it's just not meaty enough and it's not varied enough. And I said it only works with three players. For me, it's still a very good game. It's like top 100 material for sure. Maybe. I'm going to have to go and comfort my copy of Vikings now. I'm going to be upset. <laughs> 
It's going to go berserk. Just slowly spin next, the wheel while you sing next, sad songs. Next thing you know, York is going to get sacked again. I mean, guys, what have you done? Right. My number four is Lords of Waterdeep. It's a great game, but I think I played it so often and maybe lost a little bit of love for it. I wasn't a big fan of the expansion either, which sort of gave life to a lot of people's playing it again. And You didn't like the expansion? No, I thought it cluttered it up a little bit. I can't remember exactly. I played it once or twice and just didn't really your choice may have just become invalid <laughs> so yeah that's a great expansion my, my fourth favorite out of these is lords of war deep my fourth and now i know i'm in trouble is aquasphere oh my god ronan well you know what you don't have to deal with me she misses i will tell her i'm gonna tell her she doesn't listen oh, don't don't tell her don't tell her she doesn't listen. Just, i'm safe what's the number again <laughs> it doesn't exist don't worry about it she hasn't got a phone just two many steps for me to recommend it as the universal game that goes in the vault and just that little bit of extra weight on it it was in my top 50 it was my number 45 but for the vault not quite so aquasphere is my fourth choice right so my third choice in the middle of the five is aquasphere that was one of the ones i changed that was a little bit higher originally but then I started thinking about things, and yeah, Aquasphere has bounced down a little bit, so that's my number three. And my number three is Lorenzo, Il Magnifico. And the reason it came in at three is it's a brilliant tight Euro game, but it's four players who like tight Euro games. It's like tight Euro games squared and then cubed and then co-signed, or something like that. It's If you like that sort of a game, you're going to love Lorenzo or Magnifico. If you don't like tight Euros, there's nothing here for you. So it's just slightly too niche. Slightly, but brilliant. Really? You really think it's it's a tight niche Euro game? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very Euro. I mean, you're wrong, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good job you're in London and we're in the West Midlands. Okay, so my number two, just failing to reach the top mark, is Lorenzo Il Magnifico. As I said, this one is rising up the charts for me. Every time I play it, I love it a little bit more. I'm learning more and more about the game. Fabulous game. Okay, and my number two is Suburbia. Brilliant game. I very much enjoy the ability of building your own city the fact that it's quite interactive the fact that you're managing that economy get rid of pr firm it just works every single time and with a broad variety of gamers as well i've taught new gamers suburbia and i've played massively tight games with experienced gamers it's such a flexible system suburbia is brilliant my number two i see why you've gone for your number one choice right and my number one is suburbia It's a game that I have absolutely adored from the day that I finally got around to playing it and got past what I thought was the poor looks of the game. It's me on the table, bit of auction, bit of tableau building, bit of economy. Economy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of my favourite games of all time, so it had to be my number one choice. So if you're following along, you'll know that Suburbia is going to be our choice to go into the vault because it's my number two and Sean's number one. But finishing off my list is Lords of Waterdeep. I think for the approachability, which is something I do think is important for games in the vault, but I think Suburbia has it, as I just said. So certainly I think we think we've made a good choice. I think it's a great 
yet every man game. Uh, it's something that I do champion against negativity that sometimes surrounds the cooler elements in gaming. So my number one was Lords of Deep, but Sean and I collectively have chosen Suburbia. Now, Natalie, now we get to find out what your choice would have been for the vault out of those five. Out of those five, I probably would have gone for Vikings. <laughs> we're both in trouble (laughs) i really would have i know i take on board that you in particular ronin had a couple of negatives and i understand where you're coming from with them but the replayability for it for me and i just you know i just love every aspect of it would mean that i would put that personally for me in the vault however i do completely co-sign the fact that suburbia went in it is a fantastic game we've cracked it out with friends of ours who aren't gamers they come and visit us and we we play lighter games and co-op games and the last time they were here we cracked out suburbia and it went down really really well because it's something that everybody can quite quickly get their head around absolutely deserves a place in the vault poor old vikings poor old vikings i feel i feel bad (laughs) it'll be all right it'll be okay we might might have to cuddle it tonight it was in your top 50, wasn't it, Sean? It was in my top 50, I think. I think all of these were in my... Oh, no, Lorenzo wasn't, actually. Lorenzo is the one that sort of snuck in. I think all the others are in my top 50. Yeah, Lorenzo wasn't in my top 50, but I've played it since we put together our top 50, and I, it probably would have been in there yeah, now. I, sure. It has gone up in my ratings. And in fact, the more I play it, the better it appears to be. Lorenzo is fantastic. It is an absolutely brilliant game. I, it was joint I've second. I've got nothing but love for that game. Especially if you've played it a couple of times, the setup, the setup of it is so quick and then it's a quick game to play. So that puts Suburbia inside the Game Pit Vault alongside Dominion, Powergrid, Tigers and Euphrates. In our opinion, if you chose those four games to start a gaming collection or as a prince or someone else to start a gaming collection, you wouldn't be going far wrong. See us after this music for our outro. And there we have it. That is Natalie's top five games of all time, whittled down to one. That one, Into the Vault. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Natalie, for joining us on this episode of The Game Pit. Thank you very much for having me. I've had a great time, even though you were wrong, very wrong in some aspects. I'm going to try and let it lie. We don't like to be right. Uh, Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you very much, Roland. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Upcoming from the Game Pit, we have got some reviews for you coming in the next week or two. Then we're going to finish off our top 10, a long-awaited finish of that, of our top 50. And it will be the beginning of October by then. We will be starting our treasure hunts for Essen Games. We're doing our research already in contact with publishers, getting rules, secret rules even this week, Sean, that we're not allowed to share. How exciting and getting very excited for our lead into our live Essen coverage from the show. We're planning, possibly, Sean, if we can work it out, to do one or two minute videos via Twitter to give you an overview of the games from the hall. So just a quick rules run through that might be interesting. There's kind of like a nascent YouTube channel we've got as well that we're thinking we might just pop them out on there. They're not going to be super duper high quality like you get from Borgay Geek Dice Tower and the rest of it. They're just going to be almost sort of gorilla filming or something less pretentious than that where we're just giving you an overview of games because I always feel when there's convention coverage, I just like to get an idea of what the game looks like and roughly how it works. Yes, yeah, we're, we're ramping up. Unfortunately, Natalie won't be with us at Essen 
this year. She's she's staying behind to have a bit of a girly night with some of her friends, aren't you? I am indeed. I'm a little bit jealous. Maybe we could have our girly weekend in Essen. They don't play board games or anything, but, you know, what the hell? I don't think Essen could cope. <laughs> they probably couldn't. I will be listening to your podcasts with intense interest and hopefully viewing your little one to two minute videos cool well thanks again for coming on natalie and thank you everybody for listening we are as always proud members of the dice tower network go there and to the dice tower itself for gaming goodness galore if you wish to email us the email address is the game pit podcast at gmail.com we're also contactable on our board game geek guild so go there and ask us questions or whatever you wish we're on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you wish to download our episodes, we're on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbean itself. Please feel free to either follow us or leave a review or just a thumbs up. Thanks again for listening. Music by E. Aaron. Boy, boy, boy.